To start off the new year, I thought I would talk about something that is relevant for all believers, has been relevant for all times, and is especially relevant to us in our age where the world is so crazy. What I would like to talk about this morning is fighting our sin, killing our sin. Sin has grave consequences. It always has grave consequences. And if you've not already experienced this in your life, you certainly will at some point. You never get away with sin, ever. Never do you get away without it affecting you in some way. It alters us. It hardens us. It it, it changes our disposition. And I think that we are often far too blinded by how seriously it can choke out our life and vitality as Christians. To be sure, we've died to sin. We know this from Scripture. It does not have dominion over us. Our sin nature has been crucified, but even a crucified man hanging on the cross, a cross, takes many hours before he perishes. And in the same way, our old man is dying. His death is certain. He's gone, crucified with Christ, but can still affect us. I think that it is very possible that there are many of us who are content living with sin, maybe intentionally, maybe out of ignorance. And this is quite simply unacceptable for Christians. I want us to be cautioned by what Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says. It warns that, quote, none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hardens your soul. It darkens your desires and it twists your mind. It is a monster that hungers for more and more and more. And if you feed it, it will only grow hungrier. Quite honestly, we're probably very aware of this. This is likely not surprising for any of us. And yet, let me ask you, how seriously and diligently do you take the task of killing your sins? the sin that is currently lurking in the back of your mind that you know you struggle with, but don't really want to admit or deal with, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Sin will kill you if you do not hunt it down and relentlessly weed it out. It will make you earthly. It will make you carnal. It will make you impossible to satisfy. It will make you restless. And ultimately, it will make you completely joyless. But most importantly, sin dishonors the Lord who saved you. Sin dishonors God. The sanctified man seeks to fulfill every duty of holiness because his God is holy. Not because of the consequences, not because it affects us in life, but because of God's very nature. Our text this morning is going to be in Colossians chapter 3. So please open up there. It's going to be verses 1 through 8. Quite honestly, our text is a fairly straightforward text. Uh, It's not super complex, but I thought it would be good to let it wash us, remind us of our daily charge to put our sin to death. My aim this morning is to offer aid to the soul that struggles with indwelling sin, to exhort you and to encourage you to have mastery over it. Let's go ahead and read our text this morning, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll pray, and we'll get started. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Father in heaven, we need your help, Lord. We need your help, God. We acknowledge that our heart is still so riddled with sin. We are bombarded with impure, defiling things on the outside. And also our hearts are still so corrupted with that which is displeasing to you. We ask for your spirit to help us, to aid us and strengthen us, to give us victory over sin. And Lord, help us this morning to recognize the nature of these commands that are found in Colossians 3. Help us to internalize these things as our duty, not an option, but our obligation. Please bless us this morning. Convict us of our sin and grant us true and lasting repentance that we may honor you now and for all eternity. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's briefly consider what the book of Colossians has taught prior to chapter 3 about the mortification of our sins. Mortification of our sins. That's a term I'm going to be using a lot. It's just a term that means killing your sin or putting your sin to death. In chapter 1, verse 22, Colossians says that Christ has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Colossians speaks of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. And it tells us that he died so that you could be reconciled to God and so that you could be presented as holy and blameless. Your practical holiness is one of the reasons that Christ died. Think about that. Your practical lived out obedience to God is one of the reasons that Christ died. But scripture teaches that we're dead in our sins, that we're slaves to sin. How could we possibly act holy and blameless? We're in this state. What could save us from that? What could fix us? Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 tells us it's all because of the glorious mystery that was once hidden but is now disclosed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what changes. That's what changes. Christ in you, Union with Christ changes things. It alters you. It makes you no longer a slave to sin. How could it not change you? 
Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, I wanted to put up here because it's a very helpful verse when thinking about what Colossians has to say about mortification. It says this, in him, in him, a kind of key word for union with Christ. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This tells us that two things happen because we are in him. One, we are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands resulting in being buried with him. And two, we are raised with him to new life. Those are the two things Paul talks about right here. Let's talk about circumcision first. Circumcision was a physical act that pointed to the hope of a spiritual reality. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six, and talking about the true circumcision made without hands. The circumcision of the heart says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What this tells us is that without circumcision of the heart, one cannot hope to love God. Without it, we cannot have eternal life. Without it, we cannot hope to have mastery over our sin. Paul tells us here that all those in Christ have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's not something man did something God has done. If faith binds you to Christ, then your body of the flesh has been cut off and thrown away. And it is in this way that you have died to sin and been buried with Christ. Your old self, your old man, perished on the cross with Christ. Your old self died that day in him. But this tells us that there wasn't only a death in Christ, there was also a resurrection with him. God made us alive together with Christ, alive together with Christ. Our old nature is dead, including its eternal debts and penalties, and in its place is a new life, a new man modeled after Christ. And it is this new man that yearns for obedience, that hates hates the things opposed to God and that strives for holiness and blamelessness. And it is in this that we find the expectation put on us who have Christ in us. The expectation is this. We must stop the indulgence of our flesh. That's the expectation. Part of why Jesus died was to help us mortify our sin and he dwells in us in part to aid in that pursuit. Christ doesn't dwell in us just because he likes it there. He dwells there for a purpose, for a reason, to help us and to aid us. With this as the background, I want to now begin with our text, chapter 3, verse 1, which reads this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Paul here begins with a conditional, if, if you have been raised with Christ. If you have Christ in you, if you have been given a new life, your old self being circumcised and buried, then here is the command of the Holy Spirit to you. Seek the things above. Seek the things above. That's the command. What are the things that are above? Well, the Spirit, knowing our question, inspired this clarification. 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Sounds like a reference to Psalm 110. Paul alludes to Christ here, seated at the right hand of the Father. And so what heavenly qualities are present in proximity to the Lord of hosts? Holiness, righteousness, justice, love, mercy, grace, immortality, eternal life, things that are in accordance with God's holy nature. Those are the things that are above. The Holy Spirit offers no suggestions for you in this text. This is a command, make no mistake, a command to you. It's actually a specific Greek construction called an imperative. This is an expectation for you. It is not optional. It is not something you can do when it is convenient. It is not something you can do when it enters your thoughts. It is the expectation that Christians do this. Yearn for the things of God. Brothers and sisters, why do you seek after worldly things? Why do you desire them? Why do you think this world can offer you something that God cannot? We humans strive and seek after things that we desire. That's just our nature. We yearn, we we pursue what we want. And so we need to desire heavenly things. That's the problem. We don't want heavenly things, and so we don't seek for heavenly things. And we lose half the battle against our sin right here. We want this world. We do. We want this world. And we can say all day long how much we hate the world, but we like its shiny toys. We like them. We're fascinated by what this world has to offer us. We want most our convenience and our comfort and our desires and our TV shows and our social media and our money Why do you want that? Why do you want that? You've believed a lie if you think these things can fill you. They cannot. They can't. Where are the warriors of the Lord trained for battle against such things? Where are the men who strap on the sword of the Spirit and slay their enemy? Where are the ones whose holiness is assigned to everyone of their devotion to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christian, fill your heart with delight for the things of God. Learn to love heavenly things. Look up to heaven. That's where your life is now. It's not here. It's there. Heavenly things are given to us in Christ. And Christ is right now at the right hand of the Father. So seek those things. Further command is given in verse 2. It says this, set your minds on things that are above, not, not on things that are on earth. It's not set your mind on things that are above and maybe sometimes set your things on things that are on earth. It is set your mind on things above, not, not on things that are on earth. We are men of two worlds, brothers and sisters, a citizen of a citizen of one that dwells in another, dwells in a foreign land, and torn are we in our minds between things that are above and things that are earthly. This is another command, not a suggestion, another command. This imperative is set your minds, literally think about. Choose where to apply your mind and your thoughts and your intellect. 
This too is the duty of a Christian. You must apply yourself to the things of God. Part of your new life in Christ, part of dying to sin is dwelling on and loving and speaking regularly of the things of God. You may guard your actions tightly. You may be someone who really watches your actions, but if you have no watchman over how you apply your mind, you have lost the battle. Do not permit your mind to be saturated by this world, or it will be invaded, penetrated, and entangled with the thick weeds of earthly things. Such weeds are insidious. They, They... reattach your heartstrings to temporal things. They make you more interested in the broken and dull articles of man rather than the surpassing excellencies of God. These things of the world draw your eyes down from the magnificence of the Almighty. This is a great error of American Christians, I feel. We are gluttonously fattened by a diet of things most inconsequential. Satan doesn't need to directly persecute us in order to turn our hearts cold. He must only distract our minds with things most hollow. How can one slay their sins if their minds are always preoccupied with their newsfeed? It's difficult for us to realize that our minds and hearts roll like a a pig, roll in the mud of worldly entertainment and silly toys invented to distract you, and to fill your bellies. As the world spirals away, it tempts you, it chides you, it hates you, but most subtly, it distracts you from things that are above. And Satan will craftily make use of your ignorance in this matter to slit the throat of your soul. Like a city without fortification or watchmen, your sin uses your fixation on frivolous gimmicks as an opportunity to sneak in all manner of lusts. And so, apply yourself, your mind, your intellect, your thoughts on things above. Talk about them. Dwell on them. Think about them. Verses 3 through 4 reiterate why we should do this. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You do this because you've died to this world, to yourself, to sin, you've died. Why bother with your old masters? Why bother with them? Why obey them? These things don't command you anymore. They're not your masters. They may whisper in your ear, but you're free from their chains. The the prison cell door is open. You can leave. Our lives are now with Christ in the presence of God. Lives now hidden in heaven. Untouchable by these old masters. And while this may be an invisible reality for now, our life is hidden with Christ in God. One day, one day, it will not be invisible any longer. It shall become manifest. Your new life will be manifest You will appear with him in glory as a perfected, holy, righteous one. You will descend with Christ, clothed in white garments, on the chariots of heaven. That is your destiny. So why meddle with anything less? 
The apostles' first point here in the first couple of verses is made, this mystery of Christ in us changes our relationship to the world and so must change our pursuits and our thoughts. But Paul's goal here is to admonish us to crush the indulgence of the flesh. The external things of the world lure our hearts, so we focus our hearts and we, we must focus our hearts and minds on heavenly things. That's what he just said. But the more insidious problem comes from within. The more insidious problem in the lives of believers comes from our flesh. And that leads us to verses 5 through 8. So let's read this whole section real quick because I think it's helpful to see in one, one shot. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. We have another imperative, another command. Put your sin to death. Kill it. This is called mortification, as I said. I, I feel like put to death is not violent enough for what Paul is commanding us to do. Murder your sin. Kill it. Take it out. It's here that I want to spend the rest of our time on. It, it is a topic far too neglected in our day. We, we often say we need to stop sinning. We regularly express a need for holiness, but think about it. How rare indeed is it to find a man who has mortified, killed his sin? Permit me, at this time, to give you three things that cannot be rightly called mortification. Three things that mortification is not, in order to then properly define what it is, okay? Number one, mortification, killing our sin, is not the complete removal of our sin. It does not mean utter, complete perfection. That will not come until glorification. Yet, it is still our aim. This is still our goal, and we must fight for that with every tool at our disposal. If you find remnants of old lusts in you, that does not necessarily mean that we have failed the ongoing task of mortification. Not necessarily. It could. Next is a common snare, which leads many to falsely believe they have victory when indeed they are quite entangled by sin. Two, mortification is not simply changing how we sin. Mortification is not altering the way we sin. Let us, let us consider for a man, or for a moment, sorry, a man given to great outbursts of anger. Perhaps this man no longer screams at his wife. He has thought that he has victory over sin in that, yet instead he finds his mouth running to slanderous speech, speaking ill of her. That man has not put his sin to death. That sin has craftily outwitted him, luring him into a false sense of peace when there is no peace in his heart, whispering to him that he has succeeded in conquering that most vile iniquity. Few once struggled with sexual immorality, but have now given that up to only picture obscene and impure things in your mind. Do not think that you have killed your sin. You deceive yourself if you do that. Your lust is alive and well and must be killed. The third thing that putting your sin to death is not. It, it is not a purely 
temporary victory over sin. It's not a purely temporary victory over sin. Suppose a man struggles with greed, and that greed builds and builds and builds and finally manifests itself in blatant theft. And and recognizing the severity of the offense, the man says, I cannot believe what I've done. He repents. He, He returns the stolen item. He suffers the consequences. His conscience trembles under the weight of his sin. And for a time, that man is exceedingly generous, very diligent, fighting against that, knowing his weakness. But that lust was not necessarily killed. It might lie there dormant, waiting for his resolve to diminish. And after a particularly devastating failure with pornography, this is a very common thing, people who struggle with porn, you have a a particularly devastating failure with that one time. And you're just riddled with remorse, riddled with it. You're, you're, You're beating yourself up. You feel crippled and hurt and, and low and low. And you, so, so you frequently resolve to never frequent those sites again. You say, never again will I ever do that. But after a time, your resolve grows weaker and weaker, and you forget the vile stench of that prior sin. And so lust arises once more within the heart and strikes. Temporary victory over sins is not mortification. That lust lies merely asleep, waiting for the most opportune moment to strike. It's interesting, this is actually talked about in Psalm 78, speaks of this experience. This psalm recounts a little bit of the failures and covenant unfaithfulness of Israel. In Psalm 78, verses 34 through 37, it says this, when God killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high, their redeemer, but They flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. In other words, when God struck his people down, when he humbled them, when he killed them for their sin, they remembered him, they repented. Oh God, we're sorry, but they flattered him. They lied to him because their hearts weren't steadfast. They weren't faithful. For a time, they turned from sin, yet they eventually drifted back to their iniquities like a dog to its vomit. Such things are not mortification. These three things are not what I'm speaking about. With this in mind, let me now give you my definition for mortification. What does it mean to kill your sin? Here's the definition. Mortification is a cooperative work we do by the power of the Holy Spirit to daily fight against our sins, resulting in the eventual weakening of our lusts and some degree of success over our sin. Say that one more time. Mortification is a cooperative work we do by the power of the Holy Spirit to daily fight against our sins, resulting in the eventual weakening of our lusts and some degree of success over our sin. I want to consider all those pieces in turn. First, consider the Spirit of God is given to Christians for the task of mortification. By cooperative work in this definition, here's what I mean. We work alongside the Spirit in us. Let me clarify. Mortification does not happen without acts of our own will, and neither can mortification happen apart from the Spirit in us. Both things are necessary. 
The Holy Spirit is he who removes our stony hearts and causes us to be born again. He intercedes with us, for us in prayer, and works all things for our good. In the, te- in the context of Romans 8, specifically, Paul is speaking about sanctification. The Holy Spirit works all things for our sanctification. He binds us to Christ, reminding us of our forgiveness in him when we do fail, and refines us by acts of providence. He, re- he, he helps us strengthen, us, strengthens us when we have fellowship with the saints. He helps us through the Lord's Supper. He strengthens us convicts us through scripture by preaching, so on and so forth. He uses these things to aid us in our battle. He causes us to bear good fruit and ultimately conforms us to the image of the Son. Now, be warned. Some have used this truth as an excuse to absolve themselves of their responsibility to mortify sin. They foolishly reason, well, since it's the Spirit's work, if I'm not sanctified, whose fault is that really? To which I simply respond, you will not find that reasoning in Scripture. Second, true mortification finds Christians daily fighting against sin. John Owen once wrote, realize that it is no easy task to mortify sin. Sin is a powerful and dreadful enemy, and it will fight to save its life. If sin is not diligently hunted down and dealt with by holy violence, it will escape all our attempts at killing it. It is a great mistake to think that we can at any time rest from this duty. Mortification is a constant and daily battle. To not intentionally and consciously wage war every day against your sin is to freely surrender to it. There can be no compromises. There can be no concessions. Mortification is war, war, and it is all or nothing. Part of this warfare is gathering intelligence about our sin. I think this is something uh, we don't talk about very often. To fight our sins, we need to know them. By know them, I mean we need to know their battle plans. We need to know their allies. We need to know their weaknesses. Consider what John Owen writes elsewhere. He says, this is how men deal with their enemies. They search out their plans ponder their goals, and consider how and by what means they have prevailed over them in the past. Without this kind of strategic thinking, warfare is very primitive. This is our enemy. This is his ways and his methods. These are his advantages. This is the way he has prevailed, and he will do this if he is not prevented. We must daily keep watch over our souls by knowing our weaknesses. Christian, Do not go where sin will find you. Just stay away. Guys, maybe just stay off social media. Let's be honest. If social media is how laziness and lust and worldliness gets you, just get off. It's not worth it. If spending time with certain friends leads you to defile yourself with vulgar speech, defiling conduct, don't go. Don't do it. Proverbs tells us, don't go by the house of the prostitute. Don't even walk down the street. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? The godly man does not ignore his sins or the paths on which his sins walk. 
blindly hoping that they'll get better. It's a daily fight against your sins with all right diligence brought to bear in the fight. Third, true mortification results in our internal lusts growing weaker and more famished. Because we do not feed these desires anymore, they starve over time. They they don't grip us like they once did. Their dominion over our will is emptied. Our desires shift, and our love for things above grows. And lastly, is fairly self-explanatory, true mortification results in some degree of success in consistently routing sin. Paul gives us, in this verse, or in these verses, two lists of vices representative of the earthly things that we must put to death in ourselves. He tailors his lists for vices that he knows are present amongst the Colossians, but these sins broadly can be applied uh, to to any sin of self-indulgence. Here's Paul's hit list. Let's go over them one by one, at least in this first list. First, sexual immorality. It's fittingly at the top. This is sexual activity with anyone outside of marriage. All forms of this, fornication, adultery, sexual immorality demonstrates an extreme attitude of self-indulgence and worldliness. Guys, if there is even a hint of sexual impurity in your heart, you must hunt it down, and you must track it, and you must slay it for the sake of your soul. Few things will harden and damage your heart more than allowing sexual immorality to go unchallenged. Do not fall prey to this trap either, comparative holiness. Yes, you could be worse. But using that as justification to give an excuse for your sin only provides sin with the, with the means it needs to flourish without challenge. Next, he lists impurity. This is a broader term, though one that is often tied to sexual sin. Impurity are things, it's things that defile you, things that prick your conscience. You know these things. You know them. Paul speaks here not of the overt vices, but the subtle things that strangle the soul. An extra gaze upon the magazines at the store. Clicking an article you really shouldn't click. These are defiling actions and thoughts. We mustn't settle to war only against external actions, brothers and sisters. It is our calling to destroy our heart's secret indulgence in impure things. He then continues. He references passions and evil desires or evil lusts. Paul here thinks of the sinful passions and appetites that may plague us. Not only our actions, not only our impure thoughts, but our desires. They also are to be put to death the wants, the craving, the longing for forbidden things. We must mortify these things as well. We cannot think that we're just okay letting them live here in our hearts. We kill the sins, we kill the thoughts, we kill the desires. These are impulses of the deep heart and they are hidden from everyone but the eyes of the Lord. No man can look at you and rebuke you for wicked desires and longings you have in your heart. No man can peer inside the soul of someone else and know about our hidden lusts. But God sees all. God knows. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Do we not so often neglect the care of our souls in this matter? Do we not so frequently permit desires for wicked things to seep into the dark recesses of our heart to pitch a tent and reside without challenge? 
fellow Christians put these things to death. He ends this list with covetousness, greediness, which is idolatry, desiring to have things that are not yours to have. To covet is to value things above God ultimately, which is to worship created things rather than the creator. Now this list is but a taste of the storm of wicked desires that swirl around in our minds. Verses six through seven tell us what such actions reap. He says this, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. The wrath of God hurdles towards these things. These are your problem in the first place. This, this was your issue before you were saved. This is why Jesus had to save you. These are the things that Christ saved you from. You used to walk in these, but no more, Christian, no more. These things aren't for you. Your life is hidden in Christ. He dwells in you. Things are different. Things are different now. If you live in Christ, then you walk in Christ. To the believer here whose heart is dulled and whose conscience is seared, hear God's word. These things are not the toys of Christians. Sexual immorality, anger, greed, defiling, and vulgar language. If you only wish to play with them, if those are the only things you want, then stop deceiving yourself. Drop the name of Christ. If they're the only things you want, why are you a Christian? But if you are a Christian, if you have been raised with Christ, then you must know these sins are not your precious diamonds. These are the toys of Satan, the snares of sin, the traps of transgression, and they hurt you and they offend your God. The things you occupy yourself with are different. They're glorious. They're, they're far superior to any of these earthly things. Verse 8 ends this section with another list. But now you must put them all away, all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. We are to hunt them down. It does not matter the sin. It does not matter the severity. It does not matter if you wish it was not there and you ignore it. You must hunt it down and kill it. That is your duty, O Christian we're commanded to mortify our sins, and we can do so. It is not a pursuit that has no hope. We can do so because Christ is in you, because you are dead to sin, because it has no dominion over you. The question is, how? How do we do this? And so that is what we are going to spend the remainder of our time on, how do we practically mortify our sin? I have five things that we ought be doing to prepare for when temptation strikes us. And then a couple things that we do as the temptation arises within us. Five things of preparation, two things of action. First, prepare for the battle by being aware of all of your sins. Christian, you cannot hope to kill one sin if you blatantly ignore another, okay? If you struggle with pride and yet regularly neglect the weekly gathering with the saints, how in the world can you expect dominion in one area and not the other? That's not how that works. 
You are letting sin harden you. If you yearn for humility, yet neglect communion with God through prayer, how can you expect victory? You must prepare for the battle by learning to hate all of your sins, all of them. It does not matter what it is. You hate it all. And you don't hate it because it has consequences. You don't hate it because it results in negative things. You hate it because your God hates it. That's why you hate it. Despise not only the desires that stir your conscience, that make you feel guilty and cause you great lament. Learn to abhor everything which God abhors, even the things your conscience has learned to ignore. To hate sin, don't misunderstand me here, to hate sin is not just to say that it's wrong. We can say things are wrong all day. That doesn't make, it, that doesn't make you hate it. To hate your sin is to know that it's wrong, but to despise it with your will and your affections. When you sin, be embroiled in holy agony. Not the kind that causes you to spiral, the kind that recognizes what sin is, its vile, putrid scent. Thomas Watson once wrote that a man will hate a food that turns his stomach sick. How much more should we hate the food that turns your soul sick? Many men lose the battle here in bloody warfare against the forces of anger. Their lack of hatred towards laziness causes indifference. You may learn to ignore the soldiers of laziness, permitting them free access to your gated cities to your own swift destruction. Any, hear this, any allowance of sin affects the whole man. It weakens your resolve. It leads to deeply entrenched sins that will devastate your soul. Negligence in this area will kill you and you must not allow it any ground. Know your sins. Fight them all. Hate them all. From impatience to impurity to neglect of Bible reading and daily worship. Second thing we can do in preparation. Prepare for the battle by recognizing the seriousness of some of your sins. We have a tendency to downplay how significant some of our sins are. I want to speak to those who have been enchained to a sin, a habitual sin for many years, who have made a regular practice of that. You must know that is a most grave condition. Do not underestimate the toll a habitual sin will take on you. If you regularly give way to the same sin, you are likely no longer bothered by its presence and its true ugliness has been masked to you. Ask yourself this question to kind of self-evaluate. If there is no external restraint placed on you, there is no fear of being discovered, no apparent consequences, would you freely give yourself to that sin? If there were genuinely no negatives, If so, do not misunderstand. You reside in an exceedingly perilous place. You deeply love sin. And it affects every part of you. You may be so hardened, you might not even grasp how much it has affected you. If you are utterly unaltered, 
by the reading of Scripture, unaffected when rebuke comes your way, and unmoved by preaching that exhorts you, then your heart consistently quenches the work of the Spirit and the ordinary means of grace. You are in a devastating condition, and there are two options you must consider. Option one, you are perhaps so hardened by sin that the most critical functions in a believer's heart, love for God, hatred for sin, have been frozen over by hell schemes. Or, number two, you don't have the Spirit, and you have deluded yourself into thinking you are regenerate when in fact you are not. If you're worried about that second one, here's a good test. If you can genuinely identify not a single way in which you changed before you were a believer and after you were a believer, in your thinking, in your attitude, in your desires, or in your character, you have to ask yourself, have you genuinely died in Christ and been raised to new life through faith? Is your life hidden with Christ in God? Christ in us changes us. It's it's an unavoidable truth. If you're not found in Christ by faith, then you must of first concern look upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This is your chief obligation. If you imagine yourself acceptable to God, Because of your efforts to manage sin, if you think that's why you can be right with him, you deceive yourself with hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Your concern must be one of faith and repentance, not mortification. Else all you will do is deceive yourself into a false sense of holiness. You cannot be saved apart from faith in Christ. Turn to him in faith. Give up your strivings. Have the assurance of eternal life. If, however, you are regenerate, you are a believer, then you must know this. Your sin is not going to die by itself. It's not just going to go away, and it will increasingly rob you of right communion with God, contentment, love, and all good things until it is gone. Killing this sin is going to take extraordinary means, a dramatic and concerted effort, but hear this, it is your solemn duty as a Christian to do so. You undertake extraordinary means to stop it. You do what you must. Third thing you can do to prepare. Prepare for the battle by encouraging your conscience to be afflicted by sin. The sins of a Christian, though they're forgiven, are most offensive to God. You have despised God's mercy, his grace, and his goodness. You have grieved the Holy Spirit. You have offended your Savior who willingly gave himself for you. Do not too hastily push aside feelings of remorse. Be emotionally aware of the vileness of sin. Emotionally, recognize how vile it is. This will help you in your hatred for all things wicked. We can't prepare to fight unless we really see sin as the enemy. We have to grow in our instinctive reaction against it. If you struggle in this regard, if you struggle to not feel at all um, burdened by the weight of sin, I really recommend you spend time in the Old Testament. The Old Testament helps, especially the prophets. It's good to see God's hatred and wrath manifested towards the sins of the nation. Recognize how abominable sins are before God. Fourth thing you can do to prepare. Prepare for the battle by permitting no secret sins room in your soul. This one is fairly straightforward. Secrecy allows your sin to grow in the dark until it is so implanted in your heart that you will struggle to even despise it. Regularly, fellowship with believers. Here is the solution. Practice confession. Specific, detailed, accurate confession to at least one other believer, maybe more. 
Let another believer know with specifics. A lot of people get out of this by saying, I struggle with X. And uh, that means nothing to anyone, you know. Uh, you, you specifically, what, how have you struggled with this? What has happened? Let other believers know where your spider webs are. Let their influence and watchful eyes help you. And a good time to do this practically is in a prayer slot with your small groups. I honestly think that's a great slot for that kind of thing. Regardless, whenever you do it, the aim is to have a couple mature Christians who know all of your junk and your struggles, who watch for you, who regularly lift you up in prayer, who rebuke you when you need it, and who encourage you when you fail. If you have secret sins you harbor without confession, get rid of that today. Today. Fifth thing you can do, prepare for the battle by clothing yourselves with good works and the regular practice of the spiritual disciplines. By this I mean prayer, scripture reading, fasting, examining yourself, communion, church attendance, confession. These things aren't magic. They're not just magic things that poof, poof your sin away, right? But they're the means by which the Holy Spirit can mend your wounded soul. They're what the Holy Spirit uses to help you. How can a man who never communes with God through his word or in prayer meekly go to him in aid for mortification? Galatians 5, 16 through 17 says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. One cannot simultaneously manifest fruit of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are poison to the root of the tree that bears wicked fruit. Paul will continue on, actually, in Colossians 3 to tell us to put on good deeds. We didn't have time for it this morning, but put on good deeds to love one another, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So grow practiced in good deeds, and you will find your desire for wickedness increasingly diminishing. Having prepared with these things for the day of battle, let's now consider two ways that we can act when temptation arises within us. First, when temptation comes and you're in the battle, you've been called to battle, you don't compromise in your mind. You do not show any mercy and you do not trust yourself. Don't flee, don't retreat, and don't delay wiping that sin out of your mind, out of a vain hope it'll just disappear. You can't give up. Your master has commanded you fight. This is your obligation. You grab your sword, you go to war. And, and be aware of this. If you're struggling in a, a moment with temptation, if your sin finds any crack in the dam, it will burst forth with unimaginable pressure. You must know yourself. You have far less willpower than you think you have. Many claim I would never in my life do such a deed until they find they are practically able to do so and suddenly their resolve crumbles. Some deceive themselves by saying, I know, I'll let off a little steam. I'll do a tiny little sin uh, as to not allow it to kind of get all pent up. So yeah, instead of committing adultery, you regularly look at porn. I'm sure that will help. It's utter foolishness. All sins are defiling. All sins are abhorrent, and all sins harden your heart. Fight the battle by using every weapon in your arsenal. You neglect nothing in this duty. You fast, you pray, you meditate on Scripture. You call a Christian brother. You fight it by whatever means necessary, knowing that Christ is in you 
The Holy Spirit is helping you. The second thing, when a lust services within you, consciously, that means in your mind, cling to the mercies of Christ and the spiritual realities of his death by faith. Immediately fall on your knees. Immediately. It does not matter the severity of the lust. Fall on your knees. Confess the weakness of your heart and cry out to the Lord for help and assistance in that very moment. Plead for mercy and you do not leave your knees until it has diminished. Cling to the realities of Christ in you. Cling to the circumcision made in your heart without hands. Cling to your baptism in his death. And consider this, if Christ is unable to help you, what hope is there? Who else are you going to go to for help when you need it? John 15, 5 records Jesus saying this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Christ will not fail his task in this matter. He died in part for your good works for you to abstain from lawlessness. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27 says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christians, put on your armor. Pick up your sword and fight until you are raw, bloodied, and wounded. But the enemy lies dead on the battlefield. And take heart with man, this is impossible. You know this. With man, this is impossible. Yet with God, all things are possible. Christ has overcome the world, and he too can overcome your greatest lusts. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, we are so weak. We are weak, Lord. We struggle with sin. We do. We know it dishonors you. I ask, Lord, that you would send your spirit to convict us of all the sins in our hearts, the ones we know of and the ones that are hidden to us. I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen our hatred for the things that you hate, that you would drive us to our knees in repentance daily, Cause, cause our noses to fill with the ugly stench of wickedness that we may know it is something abhorrent to you. And God, help us please in this fight. Strengthen us. We cannot do it. We are weak. We're willing, but we are weak. Strengthen our weak knees. Give us strength for the battle. Give us new life. Cause our eyes to look to you for our aid. That you may be glorified as the God who sanctified his people. We yearn for your glory, Lord, and your glory through our sanctification. Please help us, Father. We need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Real quick. John Owen's seminal work, The Mortification of Sin, was of great help to me in this sermon. And many of his practical points I adapted for this. If you'd like a fuller exposition on this topic, I recommend that book, The Mortification of Sin, along with the works Temptation, Resisted and Repulsed by John Owen, and Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks.
just could be helpful for you if that's something you'd like to look at more.